You're listening to the Bank of Marquis Movie Podcast. There is a creature alive today who has survived millions of years of evolution without change, without passion, and without logic. It lives to kill. A mindless eating machine. It will attack and devour anything. It is as if God created the devil and gave him jaws. Roy Scheider, Robert Shaw, Richard Dreyfus, Jaws. See it before you go swimming. And to all that is the unmistakable sounds of the 1975 classic Jaws. Hi, I'm Andy, and I like movies. All kinds of movies. Movies from classic Hollywood, that's Hollywood before 1960. New Hollywood, that's the movies from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And modern Hollywood, movies from 1990 to today. And today we're going to do a deep dive in retrospective on a new Hollywood flick, the 1975 classic, Jaws. Directed by Steven Spielberg and winners of three Academy Awards. Jaws is generally considered to be the first movie that ushered in the summer blockbuster epic the issues that Spielberg and company faced while filming on water with the mechanical shark breaking down and actors not getting along are famous, and we'll dive into that. But it went on to become a box office winner, number one at the box office, all time, for many, many years. It was nominated for four Academy Awards, Best Sound, Best Film Editing, and Best Music Original Score by John Williams. All three of those won. And was also a Best Picture nominee that year. It was directed by Steven Spielberg, written by Peter Benchley based on his novel, brush-up of the screenplay by Carl Gottlieb. It was produced by David Brown and Richard D. Zanuck. Music, of course, is by John Williams, and edited by Verna Fields, which is very important because Verna becomes instrumental in the success of this film. It starred Roy Scheider, Richard Dreyfuss, Robert Shaw, Lorraine Gary, and Murray Hamilton, and was filmed mostly in Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts. Filming took place from May 2nd, 1974 to September 18th, 1974. A budget of $7 million, which we'll get into. It grossed more than that on its opening weekend. So pre-production. Richard Zanuck and David Brown, producers at Universal Pictures, both heard about Peter Benchley's novel, Jaws, and they agreed that it was the most exciting thing that they have ever read and they wanted to produce a film version, although they were unsure how it would be accomplished. They purchased the movie rights in 1973, before the book's publication, and later on, Brown would claim that had they read the book twice, they would never have made the film because they would have realized how difficult it would be to execute this film. So Zanuck and Brown first considered veteran filmmaker John Sturgis, whose resume included another maritime adventure, The Old Man and the Sea, uh, before offering the job to Dick Richards, whose directorial debut, The Culpepper Cattle Company, had come out the previous year. However, they grew irritated by Richards' habit of describing the shark as a whale, and they soon realized that he was not the ideal candidate for the job. Meanwhile, a young up-and-coming 26-year-old director by the name of Steven Spielberg very much wanted the job. 
and he had just finished his first theatrical film, The Sugarland Express, for both Zanuck and Brown. And so, after much persuasion by Spielberg, the producers signed him to direct. The film was given an initial budget of $3.5 million, and the shooting was scheduled for 55 days. Now, Zanuck and Brown wanted Spielberg to cast known actors, uh, but Spielberg wanted to avoid hiring any big stars. He felt that somewhat anonymous performers would help the audience believe this was happening to people like you and me. And in his plans, the superstar of this film was going to be the shark. Now, the first actors cast were Lorraine Gary, the wife of then-president of Universal Sid Sheinberg as Ellen Brody, and Murray Hamilton as the mayor of Amity Island. And they cast stuntwoman-turned-actress Susan Backlinney as Chrissy, the first victim. Now, the role of Brody was first offered to Robert Duvall, but the actor only wanted to play Quint. Now, Charlton Heston expressed a desire for the role, but Spielberg felt that Heston would bring a screen persona too grand for the part of the police chief. Now, Roy Shutter, recently off The French Connection, became interested in the project after overhearing Spielberg at a party talk with the screenwriter about having the shark jump up onto a boat. Now, nine days before the start of production, neither Quint nor Hooper had been cast. Now, the role of Quint was originally offered to actor Lee Marvin, who turned it down, and Sterling Hayden, who passed because of tax issues. Now, Zanuck and Brown had just finished working with Robert Shaw on The Sting and suggested him to Spielberg. Now, Shaw was reluctant to take the role since he did not like the book, but decided to accept at the urging of both his wife and his secretary. And according to Shaw, the last time they were that enthusiastic was from Russia with Love. And they were right. Now, for the role of Hooper, Spielberg talked to John Voight, Timothy Bottoms, Joel Gray, and Jeff Bridges. And then Spielberg's friend George Lucas suggested Richard Dreyfuss, whom he had directed in American Graffiti. Now, the actor initially passed, but changed his decision after he attended a pre-release screening of The Apprenticeship of Duddy Kravitz, a film he had just completed where he thought he was awful in it, and he thought he better jump at the chance to get his next job before all the jobs dried up on him. Now, Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts was used as Amity Island primarily because it's 11 to 12 miles out to sea, and the sandy bottom was only 30 feet down, allowing the mechanical shark to function. Now, famously, the mechanical shark never worked. The first time they put it in the water, it sank. And then they had problems all over the place. Uh, Spielberg once said that they had all their cover shots, that's uh, scenes they do on rainy days or to cover for times when they were down. They used all those up in the first two weeks while waiting for the shark to work. So consequently, necessity being the mother of invention, Spielberg started hinting at the shark, showing the view from the shark's perspective. And this made the villain much more ominous and really helped cement this film as the classic it is. All in all, the mechanical shark has just four minutes of screen time. Get on with it. Yes, get on with it. The Universal logo fades into dark, and the unmistakable baseline appears as we move deep through water, and the title card, Jaws, shows up on the screen. We then cut to a beach scene where some youngsters are partying on the beach. We encounter Chrissy, Susan Backlinney, a former stuntwoman who specializes in water work, and some drunk guy who makes a bad decision. What's your name again? Chrissy. Where are we going? Swimming. She strips off all her clothes and jumps into the water. He is too drunk to follow. I'm not drunk. Slow down. 
We then encounter Chrissy swimming peacefully in the water. The mood is created. We then hear the music. Chrissy is then pulled under the water and whipped around. Clearly something has attacked her. Now this is bravura filmmaking at its finest. Director Steven Spielberg has created a classic example of the hook opening. We have sounds, terror, and then silence. We fade to the bedroom of Police Chief Martin Brody, Roy Scheider, a former New York City policeman who is now the police chief of Amity Island off the coast of Massachusetts. Brody is called by the office regarding a missing person, presumably a drowning victim. He must be in the backyard. In Amity, you say yad. They're in the yard, not too far from the car. How's that? Now this is a wonderfully written, acted, and directed scene that gives us all the background info on Brody that we need. A family man that is not from around these parts. Those swings are dangerous. Stay off there. I haven't yeah. fixed them yet. I think you're gonna live. It's not the biggest Hello. thing I've ever seen in my life. Yeah? Can I go swimming? Yeah, but let me clean this thing off first. What do they usually do? Wash off the floor. He heads down to the beach and the remains of a body is found washed up on the beach. Brody looks out into the water, wondering what the heck could have caused it. Come on. Back in the office, Brody is writing up his official report and he types in for probable cause of death, shark attack. Brody's instincts is to close the beaches until he knows it is safe to go into the water. But the mayor, Murray Hamilton, gets wind of it and talks Brody out of it. Martin, you, you gonna shut down the beaches on your own authority? Well, what other authority do I need? Well, technically, you need a civic ordinance or a resolution by a board of select. That's just going by the book. We're really a little anxious that you're, uh, you're rushing into something serious here. It's your first summer, you know. Now, Hamilton is just perfectly cast as the obtrusive mayor. He brings another level of a holery to the role. Uh, a summer girl goes swimming. Swims out a little far. She tires. Fishing boat comes along. It's happened before. I don't think you appreciate the gut reaction people have to these things. Harry, I appreciate it. I'm just reacting to what I was told. Martin, it's all psychological. You yell barracuda. Everybody says, huh? What? You yell shark. We've got a panic on our hands on the 4th of July. We then cut to a group of people swimming at the beach. Some swimming, some hanging on the beach, including little Alex Kittner. Let me get my raft and go back out in the water. Let me see your fingers. Alex Kittner, they're beginning to prune. Just let me go out a little longer. Just 10 more minutes. Thanks. Brody is keeping a sharp eye on events in the water. Once again, director Spielberg does a masterful job of ratcheting up the tension, showing some false alarms that builds up to the real event. So let's talk about director Steven Spielberg. One of the most influential people in the history of the movies, Steven Spielberg has an extraordinary number of commercially successful and critically acclaimed credits, either as a director, producer, or writer, since launching the summer blockbuster with Jaws in 1975. And it probably is not too fine a point to say that he has done more to define pop culture filmmaking since the mid-1970s than anyone else. So he was born Stephen Allen Spielberg in 1946 in Cincinnati, Ohio, to Leah Francis Posner, a concert pianist, and Arnold Spielberg, an electrical engineer who worked in computer development. Spielberg's parents divorced when he was young. 
and this had a strong influence on him. He went to California State University, Long Beach, but dropped out to pursue his entertainment career. He gained notoriety as an uncredited assistant editor on the classic Western wagon train in 1957. In the early 70s, Spielberg was tapped to direct on TV, most notably in Rod Serling's Night Gallery, where he did the famous Blind Joan Crawford uh, episode, as well as episodes of Marcus Welby and Columbo. He then gained great notoriety for his TV movie Duel, in which an unseen antagonist chased after protagonist Dennis Weaver. His first major directorial effort was in the Sugarland Express with Goldie Hom, a film that marked him as a rising star. Next up, of course, was Jaws in 1975, the film that made him an international superstar and pretty much gave him a license to direct whatever he wanted to do. So ever since then, he made projects that interest him and had a personal viewpoint to them, like the classic Close Encounters of the Third Kind and Raiders of the Lost Ark, and E.T. the Extraterrestrial, and producer of Gremlins, and Goonies, and American Tale, and Back to the Future. Now, by 1985, Spielberg was cemented as a popular filmmaker in Hollywood, cranking out popular hits. But he wanted to be seen as more than that, so he turned his attention to such Oscar fare as The Color Purple, with Whoopi Goldberg in 1985, and Empire of the Sun in 1987. He's been nominated 14 times for an Oscar, winning once as Best Director for Schindler's List in 1993, but also winning the Irving G. Thalberg Memorial Award in 1987. Jumping through his IMDb or we'll be here all day. As a director, he has 59 credits. And after Empire of the Sun, he went on to do Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Always, Hook, a rare misstep by him. Uh, the visionary Jurassic Park, which ushered in the era of computer-generated graphics. His Oscar-winning turn as the director of Schindler's List. Followed that up with a sequel to Jurassic Park, The Lost World. And then Amistad. Probably my favorite film of his is Saving Private Ryan from 1998. AI, Minority Report, Catch Me If You Can, The Terminal, War of the Worlds, which I think is an underrated gem. Munich. Warhorse, Lincoln, Bridge of Spies, The BFG, The Post, Ready Player One. As a writer, he has 22 other credits. And as a producer, he has an astounding 175 credits. To say that Spielberg is influential is an understatement. Now when the shark inevitably attacks, Spielberg wisely uses the dolly zoom shot, pulling the camera back while zooming into Chief Brody's face which moves the shot from a telephoto to a wide-angle shot, while actor Scheider reacts to the feeling that his worst fears are being realized, that there really is a killer shark out there. This shot then subtly amps up the instinctual moment of shock and dread. It's the perfect use of the dolly zoom in almost a perfect film. Now Brody runs to the edge of the water, telling people to get out, but interestingly enough, he never goes in. He goes right up to the edge, but never goes in. It's a subtle reminder of his fear of the water, and what lies beneath. Any special questions? Uh, is that $3,000 bounty on the shark in cash or check? <laughs> I don't think that's funny at all. I'm sorry. All right, all right. Uh, that's private business between you fishermen and Mrs. Kittner. We then cut to City Hall where Mrs. Kittner has put a $3,000 bounty on the person that will kill the shark. The townspeople and the mayor are arguing when... Stay alive and ante up. You want to play it cheap? Be on welfare the whole winter. 
I don't want no volunteers. I don't want no mates. There's too many captains on this island. $10,000 for me by myself. For that, you get the head, the tail, the whole damn thing. That, of course, is the great Robert Shaw in one of the best film performances I have ever seen. A performance that was, sadly, ignored come Academy Award nomination time. Mr. Mayor, Chief, ladies and gentlemen, We next go to that evening, and we cut back and forth between two scenes. One is two knuckleheads trying to catch the shark on their own, and they get a bit more than they bargained for. While back at the Brody house, Chief Brody reads up on sharks and shark attacks, giving the audience a crash course on this subject. So let's talk about Chief Brody himself, Roy Scheider. All right, Roy Scheider. I have to admit, as a teenager in the 70s, after the French connection in Jaws, I thought Roy Scheider was just about the coolest cat out there. And then towards the late 70s, when I became more of an artiste and into music and theater and things like that, when I saw him as the Bob Fosse character in All That Jazz, I thought, this dude can do no wrong. So he was born in 1932 in Orange, New Jersey. Uh, He competed in baseball and boxing as a youth and broke his nose in a Golden Gloves competition. Uh, His film career started with the campy Z-grade horror cheese fest, The Curse of the Living Corpse, in 1964. He did show up in a small part in the film Star in 1968, and then again in Paper Lion, which was the Alan Alda movie about George Plimpton's attempt to go behind the scenes with the Detroit Lions. Now, uh, in 1971, uh, he came to the attention of uh, film audiences worldwide with his role in the Jane Fonda thriller Clute, and I have to admit, I've never seen that movie, so I'll have to uh, check that out. And then he scored his first Oscar nomination as Detective Buddy Russo alongside Gene Hackman in The Great The French Connection. Uh, He then went on to do kind of a French Connection-like film, The Seven Ups in 73, which, if you thought The French Connection car chase scene was great, where do you see The Seven Ups? Uh, Interestingly enough, I saw The Seven Ups not too long ago, and besides that part of the film... I didn't think that movie held up all that well, but it's still very entertaining. But check out the car chase sequence. It's terrific. And then in 1975, he, of course, played Chief Brody in Jaws. He followed that up as uh, Dustin Hoffman's brother, Doc, in the terrific thriller Marathon Man, where uh, Lawrence Olivier famously asked Dustin Hoffman, is it safe? Uh, And then in 77, he did this film called Sorcerer, which is a William Friedkin film about a bunch of unfortunate men who agree to risk their lives transporting nitroglycerin across a dangerous South American jungle. And this is an absolutely terrific film, and Scheider was great in it. Uh, He then uh, was forced to do Jaws 2 in 1978, reprising contractually his role as Chief Martin Brody. And if you ever want to see somebody acting in a movie and it says across his face, I am contractually obligated to be in this film, it is Jaws 2. Followed closely by Harrison Ford's performance as Han Solo in the Star Wars Christmas special, but that's a whole other thing. Uh, In 1979, he starred as Joe Gideon, the Bob Fosse-type character in All That Jazz, and earned his only Best Actor Oscar nomination. And I would say, artistically, All That Jazz was his apex as a performer. Uh, He did Blue Thunder in 1983, the 2001 A Space Odyssey sequel, 2010, The Year We Made Contact in 1984, uh, Kavanaugh in The Men's Club, and then really, oh, oh, and Harry Mitchell in 52 Pickup in 1986, which is an interesting murder, mystery, crime, thriller, drama with uh, Scheider and Anne Margaret. And again, uh, for those of you who've been listening to these podcasts and know me, you had me at Anne Margaret. Uh, his career started really fading after that, and he ended up going to television from 1993 to 1995 in Sequest 2032 or Sequest CSV, which was kind of an underwater Star Trek. He passed away on February 10th, 2008, in Little Rock, Arkansas, from multiple melanoma. That's not funny. That's not funny at all. 
Mrs. Kidner must have put her ad in Field and Stream. Looks more like the National Enquirer. Not now, oceanographer Matt Hooper, Richard Dreyfus, shows up amidst a bunch of people who are flooding the Amityville Marina trying to kill the shark and collect the reward. Uh, you know those eight guys in the Fantail launch out there? Yeah. Well, none of them are going to get out of the harbor alive. Plenty, that's what I'm talking about. You know their first names. Talk to those clowns. seems to be having a really good time today. Tell me about it. Polly, I'll get back to you. Listen, can you tell me how I can find Chief Brody? Who are you? Matt Hooper. I'm from the uh, Oceanographic Institute. Oh, for Christ's sakes, you're the guy we called. I'm Brody, I'm Brody. Oh, oh I'm very glad to meet you. Yeah, I'm glad to meet you, Listen, too. Listen, I know you got a lot on your hands right now, but... What uh, can we do for you? Well, I think the best thing for me to do is to uh, see the remains of the first victim, the girl on the beach. Okay, fine. Just bear with me, will you? Sure. Thanks. Now, Brody and Hooper examine the remains of Chrissy. Uh, victim identified as Christine Watkins, female Caucasian. Yeah, uh -huh. here's the way we have it. Probable boating accident. Now, this scene has a curious cut in it. I'm sure it's to appease the censors but it is choppy. Smoking here, thank you very much. This is what happens. It indicates the non-frenzy feeding of a large squalus, possibly. Now Hooper confirms what Brody has feared. Waters. Didn't you get on a boat and check out these waters? No. Well, this is not a boat accident. It wasn't any propeller. It wasn't any coral reef. And it wasn't Jack the Ripper. It was a shark. Now, a couple other knuckleheads claim they have caught the shark, but Hooper is not convinced. There are all kinds of sharks in the waters, you know? Hammerheads, white tips, blues, makos, and the chances that these bozos got the exact oh, shark... Oh, there's no other sharks like this in these waters. It's a hundred to one. A hundred to one. Now, I'm not saying that this is not the shark. It probably is, Martin. It probably is. It's a man-eater. It's extremely rare for these waters. But the fact is that the bite radius on this animal is different than the wounds on the victim. I just, I want to be sure. You want to be sure. We all want to be sure, okay? And what I want to do is very simple. The digestive system of this animal is very, very slow. Let's cut it open. Whatever it's eaten in the last 24 hours is bound to still be in there, and then we'll be sure. Now, before they can go cut open the shark, Mrs. Kittner comes by. Chief Brody? Yes? I just found out that a girl got killed here last week. And you knew it. You knew there was a shark out there. <laughs> you knew it was dangerous. But you let people go swimming anyway. <laughs> you knew all those things. But still, my boy is dead now. There's nothing you can do about it. My boy is dead. I wanted you to know that. And this is a great scene which shows the human element of the tragedy that is unfolding. And this sets the stage nicely for these characters and puts this film above other, lesser, imitators. Now Hooper comes by the Brody house to convince Brody to let him cut open the shark to see if this is indeed the Reich shark. So probably a good time to talk about Matt Hooper himself, Richard Dreyfus. All right, Richard Dreyfus, one of those actors whose skills and abilities were overshadowed by backstage issues and clashes of ego, and uh, reports are that he was difficult to work with on the set. He was a difficult co-worker. So he was born Richard Stephen Dreyfus in Brooklyn, New York, on October 29th, 1947. He first showed up on the screen in a bit part in The Graduate in 1967 and gained attention for his portrayal of Babyface Nelson in John Milius's 
Dillinger in 1973. Uh, before that, he was in just a ton of TV shows like That Girl, The Big Valley, Gidget, Peyton Place, The Ghost and Mrs. Muir, The Bold Ones, Room 222, things like that. After Babyface Nelson, he was cast as Kurt, kind of the stand-in for the filmmaker in George Lucas's 1973 film, American Graffiti, a film that took a nostalgic look back to simpler times, 1962, so just 11 years earlier, which is interesting, which tells you how much the world changed from 62 to 73 through the turbulent 60s. From that, he was cast in The Apprenticeship of Duddy Kravitz, a film that he hated his own performance in, and which is actually very good. It kind of tells you something about Dreyfus and maybe his neuroses and neurotic tendencies where he looked at it and it could only see the bad, not any of the good. Uh, from that, he jumped at the chance to star in Jaws when Spielberg offered him the part, thinking that he would never act again. After that, he shot up in the stratosphere as far as stars goes and was Spielberg's choice to play the UFO-obsessed Roy Neary in Close Encounters of the Third Kind in 1977. And then he was perfectly cast as narcissistic, know-it-all, egotistical actor Elliot Garfield in Neil Simon's The Goodbye Girl opposite Marsha Mason in 1977, a role which earned Dreyfus the Oscar for Best Actor, and deservedly so. He then played Moses Wine in The Big Fix, kind of a film noir detective movie that, uh, gosh, I wish was better, uh, and, but did a very interesting piano competition movie called The Competition, uh, opposite uh, Amy Irving, who at the time was Mrs. Steven Spielberg, and then uh, portrayed Ken Harrison in the film version of the one-man play Whose Life Is It Anyway about a quadriplegic who wants to die was in a very bad comedy called The Buddy System uh, opposite Susan Sarandon in 1984. And uh, boy, I wanted this movie to be better than it was. And then came back as Dave Whiteman in the very entertaining Down and Out in Beverly Hills. Dreyfus and Bette Midler played these uptight wasp rich Beverly Hills owners who befriend a homeless man played by Nick Nolte. Uh, he was the narrator in uh, Stand By Me uh, in 1976 for Rob Reiner and then was in the really bad Emilio Estevez Richard Dreyfus film Stakeout uh, about two cops and played Aaron Levinsky in Barbara Streisand's Nuts. He then played a dual roles of Jack Noah and President Alphonse Sims in Moon Over Parador, and kind of his star really began to dim after that. He was played Jay Trotter in uh, the you bad know, uh, gambling comedy Let It Ride. He was Dr. Frankenthal in Postcards from the Edge, which is a very good movie starring Meryl Streep. Uh, was in the Bill Murray comedy What About Bob, again playing an uptight, waspy character that the Bob character kind of helps get through life. And then really disappeared for a while. He was in the movie version of Lost in Yonkers, and he did the sequel Another Stakeout, and played the opposition to Michael Douglas in The American President, and then really came back strong with Mr. Holland's opus in 1995, earning him another Best Actor Oscar nomination in a movie that is, if you want to look up the definition of the word saccharine in the dictionary, uh, they'll show you a picture of Mr. Holland's opus. Then he really disappeared right. after this really bad movie called Krippendorf's Tribe in 1998. He showed back up in 2006 uh, with the remake of P The Poseidon Adventure, a movie called Poseidon, and uh, he was fine in that. Played Dick Cheney in W in 2008 and was fine in that. Played in about four episodes of the TV series Weeds in 2010 and in about four episodes of the TV series Parenthood in 2011 was in the TV miniseries uh, Coma in 2012, which wasn't very good. I uh, played Bernie Madoff in the TV miniseries Madoff in 2016, and actually he was quite good in that. And uh, that's kind of where his career renaissance kind of came back, and he's got one, two, three, four movies in production right now. Uh, so he keeps acting, keeps going strong, but not at all at the level 
that he performed at at the time in the 70s and 80s. That's like I thought. I came up in the Gulf Stream from Southern Waters. Now they cut the shark open and realize they do not have the correct shark. Hooper and Brody head out to see if they can find the shark. They come across Ben Gardner's boat and discover a dead Ben Gardner in a scene that scared the heck out of me when I was 15. Uh, my buddy and I were at a movie theater and we had both our feet up against the same seat back. And when that head popped out, both of our legs shot out in front of us and we snapped the seat back off of the seat in front of us. We quickly scrambled to other seats. Now Brody and Hooper try to convince the mayor to close the beach, but he's having none of it. What we are dealing with here is a perfect engine, uh, an eating machine. It's really a miracle of evolution. All this machine does is swim and eat and make little sharks, and that's all. Now why don't you take a long, close look at this sign? Those proportions are correct. Love to prove that, wouldn't you? Get your name into the National Geographic. <laughs> Larry, Larry, if we make an effort today, we might be able to save August. August? For Christ's sake, tomorrow's the 4th of July, and we will be open for business. It's going to be one of the best summers we've ever had. Now, if you fellas are concerned about the beaches, you do whatever you have to to make them safe. But those beaches will be open for this weekend. We then cut to the beach on the 4th of July. The beaches are full, but no one will go into the water. Mayor Vaughn convinces a few intrepid folks to enter the water, and then just about everyone else joins him. Brody sends his kids to sail their boat in the estuary, not the ocean. Do me a favor, will you? Why? You and the other guys take the boat and put it in the pond instead. Pond's for old ladies. I know it's for the old ladies, but just do it for the old man, huh? Please? All right. Thanks. While swimming, a couple of smart aleck kids decides to swim around with a shark fin on his back and creates quite the panic. Martin, it's just a hoax. There are two kids with a cardboard fin. Is everyone there okay? Did everyone get out of the water all right? Meanwhile, in the estuary, the real shark shows up. Shark! The shark! Now Michael's in the pond. And kills a man and almost kills Brody's child. Brody has had enough and has Mayor Vaughn sign the papers to hire Quint. What? what are you talking about? Larry, the summer is over. You're the mayor of Shark City. These people think you want the beaches open. I, I was, I was, I was acting in the, in the town's best interest. That's, that's right, you were acting, acting in the town's best interest and that's why you're going to do the right thing. That's why you're going to sign this and we're going to pay that guy what he wants. Sign it, Larry. Probably a good time to pause for an intermission. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Settle back now, content, comfortable, well-fed, and ready for some fine entertainment. Is everybody happy? Then let's go. It's showtime. $10,000, $200 a day, whether I catch him or not. You got it. And we're back, and it's almost an entirely different motion picture. While the first half of the film is, pardon the pun, the appetizer for what's going to come, we spend the rest of the film with Brody, Hooper, and Quint aboard the Orca. And this is where this film elevates to an elite level. The personal stakes, relationships between the men, the stakes, and the acting are all top-notch. I could watch this part of the film over and over again and always see something new. It's just swimming with bow-legged women. Now, Robert Shaw ad-libbed the line, Here Lies the Body of Mary Lee, after director Steven Spielberg prompted him to give Brody's wife a hard time. Asked later where he quoted it from, as it would require getting a license and release from the author, Shaw said that was unlikely, as it was off an old grave marker in Ireland. So let's talk about Robert Shaw. My personal favorite performance in this film and one of my personal favorite performances of all time, is Robert Shaw as Quint. He was born on August 9, 1927 in Lancashire, England, and bounced around in British theater 
until being discovered by Sir Alec Guinness, who invited him to London for a production of Hamlet. He then went on to his first film role, a very small part in the classic The Lavender Hill Mob in 1951. He then would bounce around in English stage and screen for the next few years, finally landing the part of Donald Red Grant, the main villain in the second James Bond movie, From Russia with Love, in 1963. His stock would continue to rise, and he would play Colonel Hessler in Battle of the Bulge in 1965, and would get an Oscar and a Golden Globe nomination for his portrayal of Henry VIII in the 1966 film A Man for All Seasons. Following A Man for All Seasons, he played General George Armstrong Custer in Custer of the West in 1967, and I gotta think that's the first film I saw him in. He played Luther in a TV movie version of Martin Luther, and played squadron leader Skipper in Battle of Britain in 1969. Next, he played Lord Randolph Churchill in Young Winston, and then one of his most famous roles in 1973, that of Doyle Lonigan in the con man movie The Sting, one of my top five movies of all time, along with Jaws. So there it is, Robert Shaw is in two of my top five movies of all time. He played the bad guy Blue in The Taking of Pelham 123 in 1974, and if you haven't seen this movie and this performance, it's very much worth seeing. And then took on the role of Quint in Jaws in 1975. Obviously, that shot him into the stratosphere uh, with that, and uh, he played the Sheriff of Nottingham in Robin and Marion opposite Sean Connery and Audrey Hepburn in 1976. Uh, he was cast in the lead in Swashbuckler, uh, kind of an Errol Flynn swashbuckling movie in 76, which was okay. And then as the lead in three big budget blockbuster movies, Black Sunday, The Deep, and Force 10 from Navarone. His final performance was in Avalanche Express opposite Lee Marvin. He's a Russian general, he's a CIA agent, and together they're going to bring down the KGB. Uh, it's awful. So Shaw was married three times and had ten children. And like his father, Shaw was an alcoholic for most of his life. Shaw died in Ireland at the age of 51 from a heart attack on August 28, 1978. So never more shall we see you again. <laughs> so the trio heads out on the Orca, and we follow a stream of chum as Quint gives Brody the grunt work. Quint and Hooper start to size things up, and Brody almost lets an air tank fall, giving Hooper a chance to give us some foreshadowing. Damn it, Martin! This is compressed air! Well, what the hell kind of a knot was that? You pulled the wrong one! You screw around with these tanks and they're gonna blow up! Yes, real fine expensive gear you brought out here, Mr. Hooper. But I don't know what that bastard shark's gonna do with it. Might eat it, I suppose. Seen one eat a rocking chair one time. Hey, Chiefy. Next time you just ask me which line to pull, right? The shark bites on Quint's line. We see this in a very small, subtle way. Spielberg sets this up very, very well. So when the line takes off, the tension is ratcheted up and we are ready to go for a ride with this bucking bronco. Now, a short chase scene between the men in the Yorker and the shark ensues. Hooper! Reverse her! Taking a hell of a lot of line! Chief, get the scoop out of the bucket! Whip the reel! And Quint uses a phrase that I have stolen and use in real life all the time. I don't know, Chief. I don't know if he's very smart, very dumb. Now, this sets up the tension between the men and the shark and the men and themselves. He's gone under. He's gone under the boat. I think he's gone under the boat. Keep it steady now. I got something very big. I don't think so. Now, on a side note, Robert Shaw and Richard Dreyfus could not stand each other. 
and the two argued all the time, which resulted in some good tension between Hooper and Quinn. Hey, Quinn, let it go. Hey, Hooper. Maybe a big yahoo in the lab, but out here, just supercargo. If you don't want a backstroke home, you get down here. All right, you don't want to listen to me, don't listen to me. It's not a shark. Now we settle back down, and Brody is chumming more fish. Brody! Now that chum line again, will you? Let Hooper take a turn. Hooper drives the boat, Chief. Stop playing with yourself, Hooper. Slow ahead, if you please. You heard him, slow ahead. Slow ahead. I can go slow ahead. Come on down and chum some of this shit. Now we get a good scare as the shark comes out of the water and we realize the size of the issue. You're gonna need a bigger boat. Now, according to writer Kerr Gottlieb, the line, you're gonna need a bigger boat, was not scripted, but was ad-libbed by Roy Scheider. Now we get a great overhead shot of the mechanical shark swimming by the boat, and we get size and perspective. That's a 20-footer. 25. Three tons on him. We then start a thrilling chase scene. Need a bigger boat, right? Now Spielberg handles this scene beautifully, ratcheting up the tension and excitement in equal measure. And the underscoring of music from John Williams is fantastic. He's circling the boat for Come on, come on. They pump a barrel into the shark. A smart choice for the filmmakers can now just show us the movement of the shark with the barrels being pulled across the water, thus not needing the mechanical shark that was constantly malfunctioning. Shoot! got one barrel on him, so we stay out here till we find him again. Yeah, but we could radio in and get a bigger boat out here. So that night, the three pursuers exchanged war stories. Just put your hand underneath my cap. Just get a little lump, knock on all on St. Paddy's Day, Boston. I got that beat. Some moray eel. Bit right through my wetsuit. You want to drink? Drink to your leg? I'll drink to your leg. Okay, so we drink to our legs. <laughs> What's that one? What? That one there, on your arm. Oh, it's a tattoo. I got that removed. Don't tell me. To Hooper, that's the USS Indianapolis. <laughs> you were on the Indianapolis? And then we get to the what real happened? heart of this movie. Quint telling the story of yeah, the USS Indianapolis. Torpedoes a speech that should have given Robert Shaw the Oscar. He's coming back. The island of Tinian Delady just delivered the bomb, the Hiroshima bomb. Eleven hundred men went into the water. The vessel went down in twelve minutes. Now, on a side note, Quint's tale of the USS Indianapolis was conceived by playwright Howard Sackler, lengthened by screenwriter John Milius, and rewritten by Shaw. Well, we didn't know. But our bomb mission had been so secret. No distress signal had been sent. <laughs> Though respected as an actor, Shaw's trouble with alcohol was a frequent source of tension during filming. In later interviews, Roy Scheider described his co-star as a perfect gentleman whenever he was sober, but all he needed was one drink and he turned into a real son of a bitch. Sometimes the shark go away. Sometimes he wouldn't go away. Sometimes that shark, he looks right into you, right into your eyes. You know the thing about a shark, he's got lifeless eyes, black eyes, like a doll's eye. When he comes at you, he doesn't seem to be living until he bites you. And those black eyes roll over white and then, oh, then you hear that terrible high-pitched screaming. The ocean turns red, and despite all the pounding and the hollering, they all come in the, Rip you to pieces. Now, according to Carl Gottlieb's book, The Jaws Log, 
Shaw was having a drink between takes, and when it came time to shoot the famous USS Indianapolis scene, Shaw attempted to do the monologue while intoxicated as it called for the men to be drinking late at night. Nothing in the take could be used. A remorseful Shaw called Steven Spielberg later on that night and asked if he could have another try. The next day of shooting, Shaw's performance was done in one take. Three hours later, a big fat PBY comes down and starts to pick us up. You know, that was the time I was most frightened, waiting for my turn. I'll never put on a life jacket again. So, 1,100 men went in the war. 316 men come out. The sharks took the rest June the 29th, 1945. Anyway, we delivered the bomb. Now we go from the intimacy and intensity of the Indianapolis scene to the comedy and camaraderie of the song to the intenseness of the shark attack on the boat. To the excitement of the second chase. I think he's come back for his noon feeding. Hook me up another barrel. Now, editor Verna Fields does a tremendous job in this section to show just enough of the mechanical shark to make it look real menacing and dangerous. We juxtapose that with John Williams' riotous, exhilarating score, and that gives us chasing a sense of fun and adventure. Now, director Spielberg stated that the score of this film was as responsible for its success as any of the visuals in the acting. Now after the chase, the trio realized that they are up against something entirely different. So might need to try a different approach. Looper, what exactly can you do with these things of yours? Well, I think I can pump 20 cc's of strychnine nitrate into them, if I can get close enough. So they put Hooper in the water. I got no spit. Well, the shark comes and, well, things don't go as planned. But unlike the book, Hooper survives this. He is killed in the book because in the book, Hooper has an affair with Brody's wife, a subplot that Spielberg wisely ignored. Now we are down to just quit and Brody on the orca against the shark. It doesn't end well for Quint. The shark next comes after Brody, who throws the air tank into its mouth. With the orca sinking, Brody climbs to the highest part of the mast with the rifle. He fires at the air tank in the shark's mouth in the last desperate attempt to kill the shark. And then... Fire, you son of a... The shark is blown apart and his bleeding carcass sinks to the bottom of the ocean. Just then, Hooper emerges from the depths, sees Brody, and asks, Quint. No. Now the end credits roll as we watch Brody and Hooper swim to shore. 
The credits end just as the two of them reach shore. The end. Postscript. Jaws was budgeted for $3.5 million, ended up costing twice that, $7 million, but grossed over $7 million in just its opening weekend, going on to a worldwide gross of $471 million. It opened on June 20, 1975. It was supposed to be released in theaters in Christmas of 74, but because filming ran way over the shooting schedule, its release was pushed back to the summer the following year. Now, back in 1975, the summer was traditionally when the worst movies were dumped into theaters, as Americans typically enjoyed the outdoors instead. But the film was so good, beachgoers actually flocked to see it, and the movie became the highest grossing film of all time, and the first film to gross over $100 million at the box office. And the summer blockbuster was born. It took just 78 days for it to overtake The Godfather as the highest grossing film at the North American box office, and remained the highest grossing film of all time until Star Wars, which debuted two years later. It was voted number three in Total Film's 100 Greatest Movies of All Time, number five on Abraham Magazine's 500 Greatest Movies of All Time, and voted the sixth scariest film of all time by Entertainment Weekly. It was voted the 48th greatest film by the American Film Institute on their list of 100 greatest movies. The Shark was ranked the 18th greatest villain. The film was ranked the second greatest thriller. And it is included among the 1,001 movies you must see before you die. The music for Jaws, composed by John Williams, was ranked number six by the American Film Institute for the list of the 25 greatest film scores. And in 2001, it was selected by the Library of Congress for preservation in the United States National Film Registry. And what did the Bank of Marquis think? Well, it's a 10 out of 10. I loved it, and it's consistently in my top five films of all time. Now, Jaws spanned three ever-decreasing in quality sequels, none of which approached the success of the original. Uh, Jaws 2 has a performance by Roy Scheider that screams, I am contractually obligated to appear in this film. Jaws 3 was an awful 3D adaptation. And Jaws 4 The Revenge, well, it's got to be seen to believe. Now, the film has inspired two theme park rides, one at Universal Studios Florida, which closed in January 2012, and one at Universal Studios Japan. Now, there have been at least two musical adaptations, Jaws the Musical, which played at the 2004 Minnesota Fringe Festival, and Giant Killer Shark the Musical, which premiered in 2006 at the Toronto Fringe Festival. And it being a cultural phenomena, there was more than one satire takeoffs of this movie, including, famously, the land shark scene from Saturday Night Live. Who is it? This is Robin Who is it? Plumber. Plumber? I didn't ask for a plumber. Who is it? Telegram. <laughs> oh, Telegram, just a moment. <laughs> Next time on the Bank of Marquis Movies Podcast. The path of the righteous man is beset on all sides by the inequities of the selfish and the tyranny of evil men. And I will strike down upon thee with great vengeance and furious anger those who attempt to poison and destroy my brother. A quarter pounder with cheese in Paris. What do they call it? Royale with cheese. Royale with cheese. You got a corpse in a car, minus a head in a garage. Take me to it. Mother... Who's Zed? Zed's dead, baby. Zed's dead. I love you, pumpkin. I love you, honey bunny. Everybody be cool, this is a robbery! What's Fonzie like? Cool. Correct the mundo. And that's what we're gonna be. 
We're gonna be cool. That's what's coming up next on the Think of Marquis Movie Podcast. If you'd like to reach out to us, email us at bankofmarquis at gmail.com. That's B-A-N-K-O-F-M-A-R-Q-U-I-S at gmail.com. And check out the website, www.bankofmarquis.com. And until next time... I'm watching you, Wazowski. Always watching. <laughs>